0: All right. Well, church, we are going to continue preaching through uh, Colossians and the passage that Robin just read, verses 15 through 20, going to spend a couple of weeks on it. And uh, so just mainly going to get through verse 17 uh, this morning. That'll be the goal. Okay. Well, uh, back many years ago, there was a company who purchased a printing press, okay? So a few years ago, they were purchasing a printing press, and when the printing press arrived, and after it had been assembled, they couldn't get it to work right. And so they, you know, got everyone around town and anyone that they knew of to come and try to fix it. And eventually they reached out to the company that made it and said, hey, we don't, you're going to need to send someone out here to, uh, to fix this, to get it up and running. It's not doing what it was, you know, supposed to do. And so the company said, all right, and they sent a young man uh, out to fix it. And uh, the people that, when he arrived, were a little taken off guard because he was, he was kind of a young guy, and to them seemed like he didn't have much experience. And so they messaged the company back saying, hey, you're going to have to send someone with more experience out to fix it. And the message the company sent back to this, these, these people were, he made the machine, he can fix it. Right That was their message, right He made it. he can fix it, which makes sense, right, Like the best person to get that printing press working and doing what it was designed to do was the one who made it, who created it, who designed it, and that makes sense, I, I think to most of us, uh, if you think about even things at your home that that are broken down or need fixed or repaired or aren 't doing what they 're supposed to do. Probably the best person uh, equipped and qualified to fix it would be the one who actually designed it, the one who made it. They know all the intricacies and all the little things that can go wrong with it and what all needs to be working to get it doing what it was made to do. And church, the same is true with us, and the same is true with the world that we live in, and yet so often we look to all these different places and all these different avenues to fix the brokenness in the world and in our lives other than the one who created us, right? Other than Jesus. He is the one that created us and everything in the universe. And so here in this letter to the Colossians, we arrive at verse 15, and so far Paul has given the Colossians an opening greeting. He's kind of said, you know, said his greetings. He's offered up thanksgiving to God. He's told the Colossians how he has been praying for them. And we talked about that last week, how he's interceding for them and praying for them. Uh, And now we, at the end of the passage from last week, uh, let me pull it up here. We get to, uh, this was from last week, the end of the passage, verse 13 and 14, where he writes, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so, this morning now, we have to say, well, who is this son, right? Like who, whose kingdom has we, have we been transferred into? Who is this king, right, that we have been now transferred from the domain of darkness into his domain? And as we look at who this son is, who this king is, this then is going to provide us some insight as we look to fix the brokenness in our world and in our lives, and no, no one can argue that there is not brokenness in the world, right? I, I think it's probably easy to see now more than ever. And, uh, but while we, also, you know, while we see the brokenness out in the world, we've also now had some time to be at home more, to be, uh, do some soul searching more. And I think most of us are also now seeing the brokenness that, yes, is out there, but the brokenness that is also in here. And so who is qualified to handle our brokenness? And this morning, it might, it might sound like kind of the Sunday school answer, but we're going to learn from th- these verses that it is only Jesus. It is only Jesus who can restore us to do what we were created for. Okay? He is our creator, he is our sustainer, and he is for whom all things were created. And so therefore, only he can fix and heal and restore the brokenness in the world and in our lives. And so I want to outline today's sermon for you in, uh, in three main points, okay? Number one, Jesus is first. Number two, Jesus is enough and number three, all is for him, okay? And we're going to talk about each three of those things as we go through our time together. So let's jump into verse 15, okay? Jesus is first. Colossians 1, verse 15, Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Let's, let's stop for a moment on this phrase, the image of the invisible God. Okay, let's first clarify a couple of things. Human beings, we are created in the image of God. Jesus is God's image, okay? And there's, there's a difference there. But to understand that, let me, let me first start with human beings, okay? Because human beings, we long for the invisible to be made visible, right? Like, like we have that mindset, man, we'll believe it, when we see it right and so throughout human history if you study different cultures and societies all throughout the world throughout human history uh we have often made little idols or icons or statues to bow down and worship right like like look at all the different kind of cultures in the world they probably have some sort of lowercase g god that they've created an idol or an image to bow down and worship and the Colossians, who Paul is writing to, they were they were no different. Many of them had a pagan background, and had probably had little icons or little images in their houses of these invisible gods that they worshipped. But the people of God were always to be different, okay? And God had given his, his people some commands, right, when he brought them out of Egypt. Uh, you remember the Ten Commandments? Well, the second command, right, was you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And so while every other people group had images and little idols and things that they worshipped, the people of God did not. They, they worshipped in a temple without an idol or an icon. Now, now why, why is that? Well, I mean, yes, simply put, because God told them not to, but but why? And I believe one of the reasons why is that God was preparing them so that their longings might be satisfied in Jesus Christ, right? He is the image of the invisible God. And that original word for image is here is the word we get in the English language for icon, okay, meaning exact image image, or representation. When Jesus came, God satisfied our longings to see and know God, for the invisible to be made visible, for the infinite to be brought into finite time and space so humanity could see him and hear him and touch him. Jesus said, right, if you have seen me, who have you seen? You have seen the Father. He's not like human beings. He's not created in the image of God. He is the image of God. And Hebrews goes along and kind of supports this as well. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature the exact imprint. In Jesus, the invisible has been made visible. And in Jesus, we see God. We see the righteousness of God. We see the goodness and the wisdom of God, the power and love and faithfulness in God and all of God. He is the image of God because he is God. All right? He is God. Look then back at verse 15. He is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now we have to deal with that term firstborn, right? Because when many of us think about firstborn, uh, in our culture, in our context, we think about timeline, right? Like uh, some of you were the firstborn children of your parents and uh, I was the youngest in my family and I always found it really unfair that I could never catch up to uh, Betsy's age. She was always four years older than me and uh, I never could seem to catch up. There would be a a few weeks in March after my birthday. I would only be three years younger than her, but then inevitably she would have another birthday and she would once again be four years older than me. I don't know if maybe some younger siblings can relate to my frustration of not being able to catch up to older siblings, but But listen, when the Bible talks about firstborn, it's not primarily talking about time. It's not primarily talking about who is the oldest or who's been around the longest, okay? For example, when God was speaking to Moses in Exodus 4, verse 22, he says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Now, it's not that Israel was the, were the first human beings or they'd been around the longest. No, it's, 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 it's not about timing so much as it is rank and status, right? When the Bible speaks of being firstborn, it's talking about status and rank. And when God had set his affection on his people, this had elevated them up in status and rank. So that's what the Bible's talking about when it talks about being firstborn. Or, for example, in Psalm 89, verse 27, speaking of King David and his line, uh, it says, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, this doesn't mean, right, that David was the first ever born king or that he was around the longest or the oldest. But no, it's, it's, it's don't think chronology, don't think time when you hear firstborn, you got to think status, okay, because that's what uh, the writers in the Bible are getting at. That's what firstborn means. So to say that Jesus is first, to say that he is the firstborn, we're not saying that he's the oldest or the been around the longest, even though yes, he is infinite and he's uh, all eternally existed. But what Paul is saying is that he is first in rank. He is supreme. He is over all creation, okay? And the reason that we have to clarify this is because there have been, uh, there's been heresy that's been taught uh, in regards to verses like this. Uh, for example, it's called the Arian heresy because back in the 4th century, there was a priest named Arius in Alexandria, Egypt, That taught uh, that Jesus was not God, but that he was a created being. He was not creator, he was just creation. And the early church, I mean, met, had councils, uh, out of this came the Nicene Creed, and they denounced this as heresy. But unfortunately, this heresy has still kind of lived on. We see it with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons who who teach that Jesus is a created being and not creator, all right? So uh, when, when Paul is saying that Jesus is the firstborn, it's saying that he is over all creation, all right. He's not human. He's not. Hu- yes, he's fully God and fully human. But he's not created in the image of God. He is the image of God, and he is God supreme over all creation because he is Creator. And and Paul's going to go on to back this up. Okay. So look back at verse uh, 16. He just he keeps going with this thought he says in verse 16 for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him so paul again goes to emphasize he is creator not creation everything that's been created has been created by jesus but then we look at a verse like verse 16, and there's some kind of weird things in here, right? Uh, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Like, what's, what, what's going on here? This gets a little weird. Well, let, what we need to first understand is that there is both a visible and an invisible world. All right? You see it here in verse 16, visible and invisible, meaning that there is a physical world. And there is a spiritual realm. And God cre- and, and Jesus created all of it. He created all of it. He created uh, the, the spiritual realm and the spiritual beings that exist in this realm. Many of us would call them angels, right? Now, we don't know a ton about angels, but we do know some things about angels. For one, angels are created beings, okay? They, they are not creators, they are creation. Uh, we know that they were created uh, before the earth was inhabited by humans. Uh, we also know um, we also know that there was a there is a great multitude of them. Okay, uh, there, there's a heavenly host, tens upon thousands upon thousands. We don't know how many exactly, but we know there's a great multitude of, of angels. We know that at some times uh, they have made appearances to humans, either in, in splendor or looking like normal human beings. And we know that some are obedient to God, okay? For example, when we pray the Lord's Prayer and we say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, well, who's, who's doing God's will in heaven? It's the angels. It's these spiritual beings in this spiritual realm, Right. Uh, but, but while many are obedient to God, we know that some have fallen and rebelled against God, and they were cast out of heaven down to earth, where now they are wreaking havoc on God's world and awaiting final judgment. And this is, you know, a lot of times we call them a Satan and demons, and they are awaiting God's final judgment. And that's probably who Paul is referring to here when he's talking about dominions or thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. He's likely referring to these fallen angels, okay? But, but the point is not so much like the rankings and what each of these means because thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, a lot of commentators say this is probably some sort of like military ranking. There probably is some sort of a hierarchy in the, in, in the angelic realm. But that's not really the main point here. That's not what the point that Paul's trying to make. The point that Paul's trying to make is saying, hey, you don't need to worry about them. Jesus outranks them all they are creation. Jesus is creator. And while Jesus did not create them evil, he did create them, right? And we know that God will one day judge them for their rebellion, and that God even now is using their own power against them to accomplish his purposes. I mean, how how beautiful that is so Jesus is not just one amongst a bunch of spiritual powers it's not like uh you know it's not like Jesus is on uh, one shoulder and uh, Satan is on the other and they both have like kind of equal say about in the universe and you kind of go back and forth no like there's no equality here at all Jesus outranks them all he's supreme over all he is creator they are creation and therefore, we do not pray to angels. We don't worship angels like some cults or false religions might do. Uh, listen, the only angels who would want you to pray to them are probably demons. And therefore, we, I would not encourage you to invite that demonic influence into your life. We don't worship angels. They are creation. We worship Jesus. He is creator. Okay? So Jesus is first in over Everything in creation, in your life, in my life, in yours, He is the image of the invisible God. He is God. He's the firstborn. He's the creator of all. Jesus is first. Okay? Jesus is first. Life will be so disjointed and disordered when you live outside of this reality. Like when Jesus isn't first in your schedule, when he's not first in your priorities, when he's not first in your finances, when he's not first in your marriage, when he's not first even in your hopes and dreams, when, when that is not happening, when Jesus is not first, you are not living in reality, but instead you are living a disjointed and a disordered life. You're living a delusional life because Jesus is first and he's over all creation. And it's not that one day we decide to make him first. It's that by God's grace, he opens up our eyes to reality, no longer blinded by sin, to see and believe that he is first, that he is supreme. And many of us have Uh, believe that right many of you I, I suspect are Christians maybe some are not but if you're a Christian you probably at some point come to that realization that Jesus is first meaning Jesus is supreme right he is over all but I think we often and maybe even on a daily or hourly basis we struggle with believing whether or not Jesus will be enough for us whether or not Jesus will be sufficient for us in life and salvation. I mean, isn't, isn't that a daily struggle? Uh, just, right, believing that Jesus will be sufficient for everything we face in life and that Jesus will be sufficient for our salvation. Now, remember who Paul's writing to, okay? He's writing to the church in Colossae. And what we know from history is that a few years after they received this letter, a devastating earthquake hit the city, and much of the city was destroyed, right? Much of the economy was wrecked, and there were many lives that were lost. And as far as we know, the city was never actually rebuilt. And so as I'm reading this, man, I'm just wondering, like, what peace and comfort these words would have been to the Colossians who have experienced this earthquake and it has seemed like their whole, like all of their lives have just fallen apart. Um, I mean, you, you probably can't, relate to something like that, that happens all of a sudden and, and destroys economy and people's health or anything like that, right? Uh, I, aren't we sort of in like, we're, we're in like a slow motion earthquake and, and things are falling in slow motion and we're trying to get there to catch them, but we can't seem to get there in time. And you see, it's, it's really easy to say that Jesus is enough when we are healthy and wealthy and comfortable. Uh, we, can, we say it kind of flippantly then, right? Yeah, Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient. But what deep peace and joy we can have when we really believe that Jesus is enough, even in earthquakes, even in pandemics, even in recessions, even when the bank account is getting tighter and the budget's smaller and we don't know how our means are going to be provided and sustained, that is where, man, there's that deep peace and joy to be able to know that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. And this is what Paul is telling us here in verse 17. Look back at Colossians 1 verse 17. I just read 16. Let's skip down to 17. He writes, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. In him, all things hold together. Man, Jesus is like the divine glue that is holding the universe and our lives together. We'll we'll go back to that Hebrews passage that I brought up earlier, right? He is the image of, uh, sorry, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is, is holding this all together. He's, he's holding up the universe, right? But he's also holding up the very details of our lives. And I think sometimes it's easy for us to believe, yeah, Jesus is you know, strong and big. He can hold the universe. But is he really holding together even the details of our lives? And so I'm going to share kind of a lengthy passage with you. But, but stick with me as we, as we read through this, okay? This is Paul uh, preaching to the men of Athens, and he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Pause there. Like not only, yes, he's upholding the universe, but he's giving to mankind life and breath and everything. And then look at some of the details that that he's involved in. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. In Him we live and
1: move and have our being.
0: Jesus holds all things together, both the big universe upholding it, as well as sustaining every breath in our lungs determining where and when we live in him we live and move and have our being he's even holding together the details of our lives and listen no earthquake no pandemic no tornado is strong enough to break apart this cohesive glue of the universe he upholds everything he holds all things together and this is good news, church, because I oftentimes feel like I've got to be the one to hold it all together. I, I, I do. And, and, and when you try to hold something together that only Jesus can hold together, uh, one of two things are going to happen. Uh, one, uh, things are going to fall apart really quickly, and you're going to despair, and you're going to be discouraged, and you're going to be prone to fear and anxiety, all right? Or uh, maybe life is going pretty easy and smooth for you, and you're going to falsely assume that you are, by your strength, holding all things together, and you're probably going to grow prideful and hardened to the things of God and distant from him. Because why do you need him? It seems, it appears to you that you're holding it all together. But then when we realize that it is Jesus who is sustaining us, that it is Jesus that is holding all things together, then that first, that should humble us, right? Knowing that it's not our strength, it's not our power, it's his. But it also should give us a comfort and a joy to be saying, I am, I'm not enough, I'm not strong enough, but Jesus is. Oh, what a humble Comfort and joy we can have when we know and believe and rest that Jesus is holding all things together. He is sustaining all things, and 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 so following Jesus now, maturing in Christ, right? Which is what our our theme of this book of Colossians is: maturing in Christ is really a daily discovery that Jesus is enough. And so we can be excited for tomorrow to wake up. And even if everything is crumbling around us, we get to wake up tomorrow and discover again that Jesus will be enough for us tomorrow that his grace will be sufficient for us tomorrow and next week and next month and next year, no matter what else is happening, because we know that Jesus is holding all things together. He is supreme and he is sufficient. Jesus is first and Jesus is enough. Okay, so knowing and believing that Jesus is first, what this does, it helps us understand where we've come from, right? We've been created by Jesus. He's supreme over all creation because he is creator. And knowing and believing that Jesus is enough, it helps us understand how we are sustained and held together. But where are we going? Like, what's the destination? What's the, the purpose of our life? Like, okay, Paul, you've, you've helped us see how the ship was built. You've helped us see how it's staying afloat. But where are we going? I mean, that's what I want to know, man. Where, where is this thing headed? And look
1: back at, at verse 16. And look at the last two lines. All things were created through him. And for him.
0: All things were created through him and for him. Okay. Now here, here's a, a a big point. So if I've lost you, if you're, uh, if you're in the kitchen right now, uh, getting some stuff, if you've gone, like come back to me. All right. If I've lost you, come back. Big point here. If you take nothing else away, take away this next point. And I I don't feel like I'm overhyping this. I really believe that this can change your life. This can give you some clarity and peace with, with the world and, and, and God and all that. Okay. So listen, Paul says, verse 16, that all things were created through him and for him. And so so get this. God was not created for you. You were created for God.
1: God was not created for you. You were created for God.
0: I mean, what what clarity this can bring <laughs> to to confusion, right? What what peace this can provide to some of my frustrations. And I'm gonna I'm gonna rapid fire hit you with some verses here to kind of uh, back this uh, back this up here. Okay, so Isaiah 43 verse six through seven. Stick with me. It says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I
1: formed and I made, created for
0: God's glory created for God's glory. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, right? Even our good works, the good things that we do, they're not ultimately to bring us glory, but to bring God glory. Isaiah 43, verse 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Even the forgiveness of our sins is ultimately for God, right, for his own sake. And Habakkuk 2.14, uh, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, right? As th- this, is, this is what we are, this is the movement we are a part of. This is the way creation is moving as we evangelize as we disciple as we preach and teach and share right it's for the earth knowing that the earth will one day be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the lord not the glory of franklin city church not the glory of me or dad or kevin not the glory of any us but the glory of the lord and the westminster shorter catechism takes a bunch of biblical truths and tries to summarize it in a concise kind of question and answer format. And it says, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever.
1: It's not about you.
0: God's not your genie in a bottle. He's not your co-pilot, right? He's not your life coach. He's He's not your supplement. He's He's not the created one. He wasn't created for your glory. You were created for His. And in a crisis, we, we can especially become very just self focused. And, and we see this, man. Even with churches and pastors, and I've I've been just as guilty of it as anyone else, right? This this crisis hit, and kind of after I got up, after the, the the shock and the shock waves, and I kind of realized what was going on, right? Once I came to my senses, man. Some of my first thoughts were man, I, I'm excited for what God's going to do in us, right? He's going to strengthen our faith. He's going to grow our prayer lives. He's going to give us a love for the, ch- the local church. He's going to in- increase our hearts for world missions. And, and I was just thinking about all these things that God is going to do for us. And listen, I believe all those things are going to happen. But ultimately, we were created to give him glory and honor and praise and to delight in him. And so I want my first thought to be, man, I wonder how God's going to be glorified through this. I wonder how he's going to use us to bring him more glory and honor and praise. I wonder how he's going to use this for people to treasure
1: him above all else.
0: Ultimately, we were created for him and for his glory, to delight in him, to enjoy him, pandemic or no pandemic, peacetime or wartime, right? Feasting or famine, you were created by God to give him glory and honor and praise, to enjoy him, to delight him, and to delight in him as the supreme being of the universe. And what better gift could the supreme being give you
1: other than give you himself?
0: And listen, our, as we think about being created for him, okay, our, our English translation doesn't fully even capture what Paul is saying here, okay? So in this, these last two words of verse 16, for him, translators say that this word for, it actually has a directional component as well. And, and so, yes, it does mean we've been created for him, right? His, his glory is our purpose. But it also means that we were created toward him. All right? Yes, we were created for him. His glory is our purpose. But we've also been created toward him, meaning his presence is our end destination. Like all all things were created by him in the beginning and are moving toward him. Okay, all things created by him and all things will return to him. All right. Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus said, excuse me. Sorry, I got a little out of order. All right. So his glory is our purpose. His presence is our destination. And so this is what uh, Jesus is talking about, right, when he says in Revelation, he says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The presence of Jesus is our destination, This is where all creation is moving, is what we're all moving towards. This is the stream of the river of creation. We are moving towards the presence of Jesus. And listen, for some, that is going to be a dreadful day to face their Creator. Like if you continue to fight and and rebel and distrust and not put faith in following Jesus, that will be a dreadful day, but it is a day that is coming for all of us where we will face our Creator.
1: But for those that love God, for those who've
0: trusted Jesus, that is going to be a joyous day. That is going to be a joyous day. And so if you don't understand or you've forgotten who designed you and to whom you are returning, this is why you feel disjointed. This is why you feel out of whack, right? Because this is the stream of creation. We are all moving towards
1: our creator. You see the
0: brokenness in our lives, the brokenness in our world, it can only be fully healed and restored by looking to our creator by trusting that he is also the one who sustains us, right? He's our sustainer, and living in the stream for which we were purposed, his glory is our purpose, and his presence is our destination. Jesus is first, Jesus is enough, and all is for him. Now stick, stick with me. I'm going to kind of round the curve and bring it into the home stretch a little bit. But I still have a couple, couple more points I want to add this morning. Because this, these three things, Jesus is first, Jesus is enough, and all is for him. This really flies in the face of what many people, even many so-called Christians, actually believe. And let me explain, back in 2005, there was a a new religion that really developed and it was given the term moralistic therapeutic deism. And it came out of a study back in 2005 uh, when some sociologists did a study on what American teenagers believed during that time in 2005. So you think back to 2005, a lot of those who were teenagers, including myself, right, were now adults. We're in our 30s, and so they compiled what they believed. And I think it's really uh, interesting to look at. We're gonna they they summarized it into kind of five core beliefs. This is what people were believing, because I think we many of us. Maybe many, even some of us, believe these things and think that we are Christians. And I think many of us have family and friends that believe these things and think they are Christians. But this is not Christianity. This is something else, okay? So let me uh, share these five points. Moralistic therapeutic deism, Uh, many of them believe, number one, God uh, God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Okay, yeah, God created and ordered the world. All right, number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. We could probably pick that apart, but we don't have time. Move on to number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself right now that that really flies in the face of being created for the glory of God right, uh, glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. Uh, th- this really falls apart, right, when when things in life happen that don't make us happy or don't make us feel good. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem, okay? So this is going in the face that, that God is sustaining even the details of our life. Uh, these are people that say, no, let me just keep God a safe distance away, and when I need Him, then He then he'll come and and I'll ask for his help. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Church, this is not
1: Christianity. This is not Christianity.
0: Many people think that they are Christians that are believing this, but this is not Christianity. This is not belief in a God who is supreme and sufficient who creates and sustains, who purposes us for his glory. This is not God's story revealed to us through the Bible, that since sin entered into the world, there has been no good people. There was only one, and we crucified him, right? But no, all of us have fallen short of living for the glory of God, which we were created to do. Romans 3.23, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And both some of the angels and all people have rebelled against this creator, and we have put ourselves as first and supreme instead of Jesus, and we have sought to live a self-sufficient life, sustaining ourselves that did not require God's, God to sustain us, but instead keep God at a safe distance and just merely be a supplement to our life. But God... But God, but God being so good and gracious and loving and holy and just, he came to earth to pay the penalty for sin so that earth and his people and all creation might be released and restored from the curse of sin. And Jesus came to earth being fully God and fully man. He was the creator who put on creation. He was the first and he made himself last so that he could be the all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Listen, you were not enough. You were not enough to endure the holy wrath of God poured out on your sin. You would have been undone, but Jesus was. Jesus was enough. He was enough to endure the wrath meant for us and free us from the curse that our sin had caused. And three days later, he rose from the dead, proving he was who he said he was, proving that he is first and supreme, and proving that he offered up a sufficient sacrifice for sins. And although we had fallen short of his glory, Paul to the Romans goes on to say, right, in verse 24, and we are justified by his grace as a gift.
1: What kind of God is this who justifies and declares right
0: those who trust in Jesus? Have, have you put your faith in Jesus? And I'm not talking about back when you were a kid. Like, who are you trusting today for life and salvation? Are you today trusting in Jesus for life and salvation? Or are you living like a moralistic, therapeutic deist, keeping yourself first, living for your own glory, and keeping Jesus at a distance while Jesus stands ready to heal you and restore you?
1: Jesus is first. Jesus is enough. All is
0: for him. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is our sustainer, whose glory is our purpose, and whose presence is our destination. Jesus is first. Jesus is enough. All is for him. Let's
1: pray.